Almighty God, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherub, you are the only God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made the heaven and the earth, and you alone possess them. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. We confess that we so often seek to enthrone gods of our own making. Worse yet, we lean upon and trust in these empty gods. We set them before us as worthy of all of our attention and effort, thinking that they can grant us security, and peace, comfort, and happiness. We therefore set our course each day to pursue these empty gods. And we do this in vain. We're busy each day frantically propping up our gods of of our own making by our strength and with our own abilities. We forget that we are indeed in a race of faith. What we bring to the table are unnecessary weights and sin, nothing else. Lord calls us to look to Jesus this morning. For he alone is our goal, aim, and treasure. Lord, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see, and save us from the sin which clings so closely and the weights which slow us down. Grant your spirit to come that we may, with great hope and expectation and with joy, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and in so doing, run this race set before us and do it with endurance. So keep us and sustain us this morning, Father, we pray. In the power of your Holy Spirit, encourage us that we can find nothing within ourselves We can find all at the foot of the cross. We ask that you'll do these things for your namesake and for our good. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get our bearings as we've been away from the book of Hebrews for a few weeks. And so um, I'd like for us to kind of get back to where we need to be and, and get up to speed. Notice on page three of your worship journal our outline, specifically the preaching outline. And it is abbreviated. We've collapsed a lot of the different uh, major headings and that kind of thing. But I think we can see there kind of a bit of where we are. For the first several months, we looked at point number one, the superior person of Jesus Christ. And we considered the person of Jesus Christ, who he was. We talked about the fact that he was far more superior than the angels, than Moses, than the prophets. We looked at that specifically in chapters 1 through 4. And then we turned our attention, chapters 4 through 10, at the superior work of Christ. What did he accomplish on the cross? What did he do? And we noticed there, as you remember, we talked about the high priesthood, the priest priest forever, Melchizedek, and how Christ is in that line. And that when he came, he did not come into uh, the tabernacle or the the temple of old, um, but Jesus Christ himself fulfilled that law and that the only thing we are to do in order to come into the presence of God is to, by faith, trust in Christ, as opposed to going through all the rituals and regulations of the Old Testament law. And so the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. 
And over the last couple of weeks, we've actually made a turn to point number three there in your worship journal, the superior life in Christ. So here this pastor who's writing the book of Hebrews to this, to this Jewish congregation is saying, in order for you to, to get what I'm trying to say, he's saying you need to understand who Jesus is and what he did. And now he's, he's if you will, turning to the last and final point and saying, and therefore, this is how you are to live. If Jesus is this person that, that is being seen in the Old Testament and in the Scriptures, he's far more superior than the angels. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And if Jesus Christ has shed his blood, and that blood is far more valuable than the blood of goats and, and sheep, and that his blood has atoned for our sin and made us so that we can have access to God, therefore, we are to live in a certain way that's indicative of, that flows out of what Christ has done for us. And so we see this in chapters 10 through 13. This pastor is laying out the framework of the ethics, if you will, or the, the doing, the activities, what, what flows out of what Christ has done. And he makes that a necessary point. And in the midst of this, we need to understand as we've looked throughout this passage that there's been indicators that this small, struggling congregation outside of Rome, probably near Italy, was going through very, very difficult days. They were a Jewish congregation who many um, were considering whether they should go back to the Old Testament Jewish law. But on top of that was persecutions and difficulties that were taking place. They were having to stand for their faith, and that was causing suffering not only for them, but for their families and for the small congregation. And this pastor was, was pointing out through this entire book, chapters 1 through 13, the theme is this. It's endurance. How can we endure? How can we persevere? How can we continue? And so as this pastor is encouraging his congregation toward endurance as they are struggling... He's wanting to show them how they can endure. Isn't it amazing that he didn't just jump to chapters 10 through 13, but instead he laid a foundation. He said there's only one way you're going to endure, and that is if you have a strong and solid foundation, and that is in who Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished for you on the cross. Only in that will you be able to then live in a way that will allow you to have roots deep enough so that you can endure during these very, very difficult days that are coming. And what we find is that the, the, the book was written probably in the late 40s, early to mid-50s after Jesus. And we know that in the 60s, there was a great persecution specifically among the Roman Empire where, where thousands of Christians were martyred for their faith. Isn't it interesting, the providence of God, as this pastor was encouraging this congregation not too far from Rome to endure trust in their Savior because they needed this as they, as, as they were looking into the future. And so this morning I want us to land here and look at our particular text. Notice with me the subpoints under number three, the superior life in Christ. We looked at chapter 10, and in chapter 10, let us endure by faith. This is speaking of the community's present challenge. And he was talking to them about what they were presently having to deal with. And he was encouraging them to endure in their present challenge right then and there what they were having to deal with. And he's saying you're going to only be able to do this as a community, as a body of believers. This next section, 10, 11, 12, and 13, are all, are all speaking to this entire community of believers. Not individuals by themselves, but he's saying in order for us to endure, we're going to have to do this together. And the first issue was the present challenges that were before them. That's in chapter 10. I'll let you read those if you like. Go back and read chapter 10 concerning these present challenges that this pastor felt that his congregation would be going through. 
And then he takes a turn in chapter 11 and he says, now look at this. There have been, you're not, you're not in unfamiliar territory. You're not in unfamiliar waters. But the, but the saints of old, specifically the Old Testament saints, endured. They had a very difficult life. They knew what it meant to struggle and to stand for their God. And how did they do it? He looked back in the past, chapter 11. How did Abel? How did Noah? How did Moses? How did Abraham? How did they stand? They stood by faith. And so this, this pastor is turning them now. He says, this is your present challenge, chapter 10. Look in, in the past, in our history. This is not uncharted water. Our, our, our people, those who have walked with God in the past, have done so in difficult days, in struggles, and they've done it by this, this particular means, and that is by faith, chapter 11. And now the pastor in chapter 12 and 13 turns us, if you notice again in your worship journal, there it says, let us endure by faith the community's future challenge. This pastor now says, now let's look ahead and I want to encourage you because the future is going to be difficult and I want, I want to challenge you for the days that are coming ahead of us. And of course, this pastor knew. He didn't know about the, 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 the Roman Empire, um, the martyrs that were going to be taking place in sixty. And, and all of those other things. But he knew that this, 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 this endurance was necessary. And so he begins for us this morning in chapters 12 and 13. And he speaks of this community's future challenge. And he says, there's going to be, there's going to be a necessity for you to endure. And this is how you need to do it. And that's what chapters 12 and 13, as we're going to be finishing out the book of Hebrews over the next couple of months. That's what we're going to be dealing with. The future challenges of this congregation... And very well, it may be the future challenges of our congregation. How are we going to endure in the future? How are we going to continue? Well, I want us to see this this morning as we start in chapter 12 with two points. Two points in chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2 is all we're going to deal with this morning. Verse 1 and verse 2 are all the texts we're going to deal with this morning. Point 1, run with the saints. And that's in verse 1. Point one, verse one, run with the saints. Point two, verse two, look to the prize. Point one, run with the saints. Point two, look to the prize. Look to the prize. How are we going to stand and endure in the future? Verse 1 tells us, first and foremost, we need to run with the saints. Look with me, if you will. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The therefore is turning us back to chapter 11. And it's showing that chapter 11, actually, our, our chapter numbers are probably misplaced. Because verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 really need to be, in our own minds, connected to the end of chapter 11. They need to be directly connected. It's really summing it all up. He's saying, I've went through and I showed you in chapter 11, Abel, the faith of Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. He says, and therefore, verse 1 of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? These are the saints of old. These are the ones in, the, in chapter 11. He says, we're surrounded. All around us are these, are these, are these witnesses. Since we're surrounded by them, 
We need to run with endurance this race. Now, the old way of preaching this passage and the, uh, uh, the, the, the way that's typically looked at this passage, the idea is one of a great coliseum. And the idea is that this great coliseum is filled with all of these saints who are looking down on those who are running, the Christians of this day in the book of Hebrews and us today, and they're looking down on us and they're cheering us on and they're watching expectantly to see how things are going. Now, the difficulty is, is that, that is, we, we don't see anything about that in scriptures um, in way of uh, those who have gone on ahead of us looking down on us. Um, I would dare say that if the saints of chapter 11 or any of our dear loved ones looking down on, on us at heaven, I'm not sure how encouraged they would be. I know in my case, I don't know how encouraged they would be. We don't have anything in Scripture that speaks to the fact that um, our loved ones or saints of old are looking down on us in any particular way. We have no text that verifies that. The majority of us are sitting there thinking, well, wait a minute, I've, I've heard that before. Well, you have. Almost each and every funeral you go to, the sentimentalism breaks in, and there's never a text that's given, but... There's always the, you know, Aunt Betty's looking down on us right now and she knows she's in a better place. And, and, and that is really where our doctrine of people that have gone on looking down on us comes from, specifically as Protestants. There's no, there's no indication of that in Scripture where God's people that have gone on, our loved ones and others, are looking down on us. Brothers and sisters, they are with Jesus. <laughs> they, don't, they, 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 have, they have run the race. Now, what is being spoken of here, though? This great cloud of witnesses. The idea here is that they are a means of encouragement. In what way? Not in their looking down on us, but in us looking to them. Our looking to Moses and to Abraham and to to Isaac and and these saints of old who were not perfect, were they? They were not perfect. But they lived by faith and they struggled by faith. What, as, as we are running this race, we look to these saints and we look to our loved ones who are saints who lived the life of faith before us and we're encouraged by them, not by their looking at us, but this great cloud of witnesses. We look to this great cloud of witnesses for encouragement because these men and women, these heroes and heroines of the faith were not perfect, but they endured. And as we seek to endure in this race, it says here, this pastor is encouraging him. He says, therefore, we have this great cloud of witnesses, these saints of the Old Testament and so many others. Since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, he encourages them or challenges them to do two things. Notice what it says in the text. The first challenge to them is this. Because we have this great cloud of witnesses encouraging us, now that, that and that alone will not make us endure, will it? Just being encouraged, knowing that we have saints that have gone before us that have endured, that though that's encouraging, that does not, that does not, that's not enough for us to endure. So this pastor goes on, he says, now let me help you understand that if you're in this race of faith, not only do you need encouragement by looking to the saints of old, knowing that they did it, but I also want you to understand that you need to practically prepare yourself. You need to specifically prepare yourself for this race, and that's where we get the first challenge here. Let us also, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, verse 12, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight. Lay aside every weight. Now, we see here that this pastor is encouraging his congregation to lay aside first every weight and then second the sin which clings so closely. Let's deal with the weight first. This weight, as we understand, if we're using the And we need to, I guess, understand this running metaphor, this race metaphor. Weights are not bad things in and of themselves. 
In fact, when a, an athlete and a runner, which I am not, and that's obvious, I think, from every, every, every evidence of, of my life, I am not a runner, but weights are used often for runners to build and to, and, and, and to, and to help them in their training. They use all kinds of resistance, all kinds of things to help them be able to run better. But when it comes time to race, what happens? They shed those weights. They get rid of them. They do not run with those weights on them. They, they strip down to bare minimum. Why? Because these weights, though they're not bad in and of themselves, they are hindrances to the race. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning to understand these weights not as evil or bad in and of themselves. In fact, they very well may be in our own lives the very things, the blessings that God has given to us, but are they hindrances for us in our race? No one would call you out on this particular weight that may be in your life because it's a good thing and everybody sees it as a blessing from God. But is it a hindrance? Is it a weight? Our pastor here is saying you need to Lay it aside, cast it off, throw it away. Get rid of this weight that may be a hindrance. Brothers and sisters, what could be weighing you down from running the race of faith that God has called you to? My prayer is that the Spirit of God is working even now to convince you that there may be things in your life that may not be sin in and of themselves. They may be good things, but they're distracting, they're hindering, they're keeping you from running the race that God wants you to run. They may be blessings like your job or your marriage or your family or, your, or a relationship or even a hobby or a sport. They may be things that are not bad in and of themselves, but they're weights, brothers and sisters. And pastor here says we need to lay aside these things that are not necessary. That's the, that's, that's the whole idea of this weight is that it's not that it's bad, it's just unnecessary. Not needed for what this race has been called us for us to do, to run. We need to run with endurance. How are we going to do that? We've got to lay, a, lay aside these weights. These things that are in our lives that may be causing us to slow down. You see, these weights aren't bad things. They only become bad things when they become ultimate things. When they become the things that are most important to us, then they become a weight and a hindrance to what God is doing through us and in us as we run this race of faith. So the weights were not bad in and of themselves, but the second thing is, as pastor says, not only should you lay aside every weight, every weight, do you see that? Every weight, not just, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay aside some of them and I'll keep others. No, he says, lay, lay aside every weight that you see that's hindering you from running this race that God has called you to run. But then he goes on and he says, and the sin which clings so closely. Now, this is, this is the bad thing. There is no good sin. There is no indifferent sin. This is a sin that clings so closely. A lot of translations, English translations, actually put an article before this and say, the sin which clings so closely. Interesting thing is, is this not there. Um, there's not an article preceding the word sin in the original. And so some have actually said that this sin is the sin of unbelief or the sin of pride or the sin of selfishness. And they try to give broad categories of a particular sin. And what it seems to be here, the ESV is indicating, and sin which clings so closely. Call it what you will, it's sin, period. Any particular sin, any particular sin needs to be laid aside. Not just the sin or a major sin, not just the sin of unbelief, though that needs to be laid aside if that's the sin in your heart. 
But it's the sin, it's any sin that may cause you to not run this race in a way that's effective. Why is, what's the reason given for this sin to be laid aside? What's the reason given? It says here, let us run with, excuse me, let us lay aside every weight and the sin, here's the reason, which clings so closely. Which clings so closely. Some translations uh, translate this, which entangles us or which easily ensnares us. Other translation says, which besets us. The idea is the idea of one running with, with, uh, with, with a robe on or with all kinds of things hanging off of them. In other words, there's this, these sins are closely clinging to us. They're all around us, and we cannot run with freedom and efficiency with these sins hanging off of us. We're not able to run in the way that God's called us to run. This weight and the sin is causing us to be sluggish in our race. It's very important for us to understand that this sin must be cast off. It must be thrown away. It must be laid aside. Why? Owen, I think, says it very pointedly. Either we will be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We need not take sin lightly. We need to be vigorous in attacking and approaching and understanding our sin that's in our hearts and understanding that it is causing us, is clinging closely to us, and is causing us to not run the race as God would have us to run it. Brothers and sisters, lay it aside. Cast it away. Throw it off. This sin and this weight are not necessary for us as we run this race that God has called us to. Do not take sin lightly. The next challenge that we see this pastor communicating to this congregation isn't just the laying aside of the weight and of the sin, but the second challenge, he says, now, not only do we have this great cloud of witnesses, first challenge, lay aside these things that are hindrances, like weight and like sin. But secondly, he wants them to understand, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The challenge here isn't just the run. He doesn't say run aimlessly. Just run. Where do I run? Anywhere. Just run. He doesn't say that. He says run with endurance. Run with an intentional effort, aim-oriented running. Now, this is not only here in our New Testament. Don't we... Aren't we reminded even now, as we've read our New Testament, some of us many times, we are familiar with Paul's encouragement to his churches? 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. (laughs) That's not an aimless running. That's a running to obtain the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, 1 Corinthians 9. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself may be disqualified. That's an aim-oriented running. That's a running for endurance. Timothy in 2 Timothy, excuse me, Paul, speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see this running metaphor? There's not this aimless running, this unintentional passive jogging. This is a running with all effort and aim. 
Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run, how? In vain. So there's a running that can be done in vain. There can be a lot of effort exerted and it be done in vain. This pastor here is telling his congregation, let us run with endurance. Let us run with vigilance. Let us run not passively, not wandering around, but carefully, intentionally, with effort. It's amazing because this word here for race, this pastor used this particular word. There's other words for race, but he uses this word for race. And the Greek word is agonai, which is where we get our English word agony from. He said, run this race. And when they heard that, they heard agony. It's not a passive stroll in the park. It's not a walk on the beach in the afternoon. Brothers and sisters, if you have been told that the Christian life is this sit back, let go, and let God You've been lied to. It is a race, brothers and sisters. It is a going hard after God. It is a race that is to be endured. It is a race that is agonai. It's going hard after God. I was reading over the holiday. I actually read um, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Just to give you a little bit of an understanding of this book, J.C. Ryle was a bishop in the early uh, 1900s, and um, and he was confronting a heresy in his day. It was called the Keswick Movement. The Keswick Movement grew out of the Wesleyan Movement, and basically their slogan was, let go and let God. They were so convinced that God saved them completely and fully, they didn't have to do anything else in order to be, be faithful. God saved me, so now I can do whatever I want. I can live the way I care. I don't care to. The Keswick movement pushed on, and we know that even B.B. Warfield, as he came into the, the early 1900s, he wrote two of his volumes in the 11-volume in the set that B.B. Warfield has. He wrote two of his volumes against perfectionism, which was nothing more than the outflow in America of the Keswick movement. And the idea was this, is that once God saves us, we have no other, all we have to do is let go and let God. Just sit back and let him hit you with it. And J.C. Ryle writes the book Holiness and says, God does save us, and he saves us completely, and he saves us fully, but he saves us to a race. He saves us that out of that salvation, he's called us to take up our cross and follow him. He's called us to run this race, and that's exactly what we see in our scriptures today. It's exactly what we see in our Bible, that God doesn't call people into passivity. He calls them to go hard after him, to pursue him with all their heart. And that's what God's called us to. Now, finally, I want you to see here in point number one that he's called us. He says, let us lay aside these weights and sin. Let us run with endurance the race. Notice this last phrase. That is set before us. That is set before us. An all-wise, good, and loving God has set your course, brothers and sisters. It doesn't seem that way, does it? I mean, it seems like a a frantic, random mess 
as you go into your day in, day out events. But God has set your course. God has set you within the parameters of the circumstances and the relationships that he has you in for the purpose of producing the the greatest amount of faith and dependence upon him that he could possibly do. And it's different for each one of us, isn't it? Each one of us have different challenges and trials and circumstances and issues. And each one of us wish we had the other one. Man, I wish I could have it as easy or as good as that guy. No, that, set, that course was set for them, for their sanctification, and for them to be like Christ. Your course has been set by God for you, brothers and sisters. Yeah. Know that it's not a random happenstance, but it is by the very good and wise calling of God. Now, let me say this as well. As we, I want to turn here to the second point, but I want, to, I want to make note of this, and this may be for you. There are so many here today, I believe, who have huge, major regrets in your past. And your idea of God's plan set before you is this. Well, God set that plan before me, but man, I royally messed it up. And so now God's up in heaven trying to figure out how to get all the pieces together to make it look as good as it possibly can because it's, it's so broken, he's just going to do the best he can with it. Even your regrets somehow are going to be turned for the good of God and his kingdom and, for your, and, and by his grace cause you to be what God's called you to be. God's not there trying to put together the pieces and it's the best he can do here. This is, this is your course set before you. No, even in the midst of regrets, God is saying, I'm making a masterpiece. I'm bringing my child to me, and they're going to be reflection of who I am when they get here. And God's not fumbling around trying to figure out how he can fix your life because you messed it up so bad. He set the course before you, and it's a race for you to run. Brothers and sisters, run with endurance, knowing that it was set before you. We can trust him then with the past regrets as well as with the future anticipations of what he has for us. Point number two, look to the prize. Point number two in our endurance, first, we have to run with the saints. Point number two, we have to look to the prize, and this is in verse two. Notice with me in verse two. It's amazing the amount of balance that's in Scripture. Many of you have been beat up most of your life in churches with pastors pounding on the pulpit saying you need to do more in order to please God. I hope you didn't hear that in the earlier part of running the race, the agony, the struggle. It's not passive. I wanted to challenge you because that's what the text does. But you're not doing this to please God, brothers and sisters. You're not doing this so that you can somehow merit some kind of favor before God. You're doing it out of the favor that God has given to you. How are we to run this race? How are we to see and discern these unnecessary weights? How are we to effectively abide in him and to cut off the sin that so easily and so closely clings to us? How are we to run this race with endurance? Each and every one of us have tried to do that in our own efforts, haven't we? When we, we put it on the calendar to read our Bible every day, we, we try to order our lives in such a way as to do these disciplines that God has set out before us. 
We've done this and we've done that. We've, we, we've tried every way, whether uh, physically or mentally or schedule-wise or all these other things, all these things we've attempted to do in order to be faithful, in order to live out our lives, to run this race as we have called it to do. And each one of us have failed along the way, haven't we? Why have we failed? What is the cause of our stumbling? Because we're not doing it according to verse 2. We're not running the race as verse 2 describes to us that we are to be running the race. We can run the race aimlessly and in vain if we do it in our own efforts. There's only one way to run this race. Hear me. Look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are to run this race first and foremost by looking to the prize who is Jesus Christ. This idea of looking isn't just uh, looking out. The actual word speaks of looking up to Jesus. The idea is all these circumstances and sins and encumbrances and weights that are around us, all of these things, that the circumstances that are around us, and, and this passage says, in all of the midst of all of this that we see around us, look up to Jesus. Look up to where Jesus is. Look to the prize that God has given to us. Consider our Savior. We can only run this race if we look to Jesus who endured the cross set before him. We can, as some translations say, fix our eyes on Jesus. Look away. Look away from our encumbrances. Look away from our weights. Look away from our sin and look to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't look to your spouse. Don't look to your friends. Don't look to your achievements. Don't look to your pastor. Don't look to your family. Don't look to your baptism. Don't look to your church attendance. Don't look to your worldly success. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Without looking to Jesus, there will be no ability for you to have anything that God has for you. We receive everything that we have by God, all the blessings of who God is, we receive through Christ. That's why the Puritans say... Looking unto Jesus is the great means of grace. Listen to this. By which all other means receive their power. (laughs) Read your Bible without looking to Jesus, brothers and sisters, and you've done it in vain. Spend time fellowshipping with one another without looking to Jesus, you've done it in vain. Live one second of your life without looking to Jesus, you've done it in vain. Looking to Jesus is the means whereby all the other means of grace receive their power. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Do you want to cut the taproot of sin? Are you like me? I've got my calendar and I've got my to-do list, and I can actually work sin out of my life if I do it just right. Right? I can, I can work the system and do all this and fail and fall flat on my face over and over again. I hate the sin that keeps attacking my heart. I hate the temptation that comes at me over and over again. How do we cut the taproot of that sin? How do we overcome the sin that besets us? The sin that so closely entangles us. The sin that, that comes around us and desires to trip us up and does it so well and so often. How do we do that, brothers and sisters? We look to Jesus. I hear it said that a runner should not ever look at their feet. Is that true? If you look at your feet, what are you going to do? You're going to fall. You look to Jesus. In our race, we look to Jesus. 
when you look to Jesus, brothers and sisters, the allurement of sin will no longer draw you. Jesus is far too precious for me to to, to look to that sin and to want it. When you look to Jesus, the allurement of that sin will no longer draw you. The empty promises will no longer woo you when you look to Jesus. Now, we're not just simply to look to Jesus in any old way or to make up or create some kind of Jesus in our own mind that we're to look to. Some of you may be here today saying, Pastor, I have looked to Jesus and I've tried hard and I keep falling into this sin. I keep coming into the way of the sin. I would say that you may be looking to a Jesus that is one of your own making, not the one that has been described for us in the last 11 chapters in the book of Hebrews. You see, this pastor is not just saying, look to a Jesus that you may want to create in your own mind. He says, look to Jesus, and then he describes for us who this Jesus is in the rest of verse 1. Let us look at this together. This idea, this understanding of who Jesus is, is one who we are to, we're to look to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at verse 1. Looking to Jesus, the, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see what he's doing here? This church is struggling to endure. This church is struggling to continue. And he's saying, look to Jesus, brothers and sisters, for he is the founder or the author or the starter. He's the one that began your faith. Look to Jesus. When you first look to Jesus, your faith began. Your, your faith was, was you were coming out of the, coming out of the, 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 the beginning of the race. This Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the author of our faith. But is that really the point that this pastor is wanting to make to this church he's trying to endure? No, he's saying what Jesus has begun, according to this passage, he will perfect or complete or finish. You see what he's doing, trying to encourage this congregation? He's saying the same Jesus who started your faith is the one who will finish it, brothers and sisters. Endure, look to Jesus because he will see you through to the end. Know this, that if you don't finish, then you never were started. That's what we believe about perseverance of the saints. That if you do not finish, then you never started. You were looking to a Jesus of your own making. You were thinking that you started the race because you verbalized that you believed in Jesus. Like two or three weeks ago when I was sitting and talking with a Muslim in the coffee shop. And he says, I believe in Jesus. He has not started this race, brothers and sisters, because when he speaks the word Jesus, he means a different person than I do. I I, I fear that we, even in our churches today, we say that we've started with Jesus and we mean something different than what the Bible says of who Jesus is when we say that. Brothers, if you have started with Jesus, your endurance is sure because he will finish that race. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion At the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul even knew that God who starts something will finish something. He speaks of this in the church in Thessalonica as well. Paul says to them, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that... 
Let me, let me reiterate that and just think about, okay, if I'm telling you, this is what I want you to do, congregation. The God of peace is going to sanctify you completely. In other words, he's going to make you holy. Now, I'm a long way from that. And I know most of you and you are too. Okay? He's going to sanctify us completely. Make us holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be blameless. Blameless, that's the word. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when Christ comes, are you ready? Are you blameless? Are you holy? Are you saying, not yet. He's doing it in us. He's creating that in us. Listen to the last part of this verse. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says he's going to give us peace. He's going to sanctify us completely. He's going to make us blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, listen. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you see where the confidence rests? Do you see where the faith lands? It's not in your ability. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Because this pastor Paul knew that when he told his congregation that he would be, they would be blameless and sanctified completely, he knew that would discourage them because they're nowhere near that. And then he says, but God is faithful and he will do it because he can. Looking to Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Unless you look to and trust in Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, you have not even entered the race. But if you've entered the race and you're clinging to Christ, looking to him, brothers and sisters, he is not only the founder, but he's also the perfecter, the completer, the finisher of this race. Continue to look to Christ. Next thing we see or that we are to see, we're to look to Jesus, this Jesus who not only is the founder and perfecter of our faith, but we're to look to Jesus who for the joy set that was set before him endured the cross. We're to look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus endure the cross? He did it with joy. That's odd, isn't it? We see this all over the New Testament, even in the Old, where God's people, in the midst of incredible circumstances and struggling, they had joy. Christ, at one of the most horrific times in all of human history, approached the cross, endured it with joy. How did he do that? How could Christ, as it says here, for the joy that was set before him endure the cross. You know what Christ saw when he went to the cross? He saw what was on the other side of the cross. It says here, it says here in our passage, for the joy that was set before him. See, this was his path that God had set for him, just like God had set our path in verse 1. Here, this was Jesus' path that God had set for him. And he knew that this path wasn't to end at the cross. But it was to end in glory, in heaven. It was to end with with not only Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, but Jesus sitting at the right hand of God with his church, with his saints, brothers and sisters, with you and me. Jesus was able with joy to approach the cross. Seeing the other side of it was was a bliss. 
It's a great joy for him to know that though he had to endure the horror of the cross on the other side was heaven. How much, how much wonder and amazement and glory and beauty could heaven be that Jesus saw that would make him endure something as horrid as the cross? Think upon it, brothers and sisters, because we are promised to be there with him one day. Because he endured the cross, we have his stay. We're at the right hand of Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father. We're with God because of Christ. He saw it well. How are we to endure today? How are we to continue in our faith? We look to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We look to that joy Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ was able to endure the cross with joy because He saw it was on the other side of the cross. We too will endure if we're willing to look past the suffering and the struggle that God has placed us in, the path that he set before us, and to say it's all for your glory, it's all for the eternity that I will spend with you, O Lord, with joy we can endure. But the question then is this, how did Jesus endure this cross differently than everybody else in the Roman Empire that was hung on the cross? You do know that this wasn't just three men at one particular time and then it was over. The Roman Empire used the cross basically as a means of execution. And there were many, 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 many people that were crucified on the cross. There were even two thieves beside Jesus, two criminals that were beside Jesus. How is it that Jesus' cross enduring was different than theirs? Have you ever asked that question? Well, the, the physical pain and death of the cross was unspeakable to begin with. I actually have uh, in my study... A, a letter written by a, a medical doctor that goes through and he basically documents of what would take place to the human body if, if, if what was done to Jesus was done to a, a regular man. What organs would be shutting down, what would be taking place, how things would happen, and how the body would basically uh, debilitate from that point. It's an amazing, humbling read how horrible that physical pain was. And in many ways, Jesus endured that cross as these other two criminals did in this way, in the physical pain and death that they endured. But that's not all Jesus was doing there on the cross, brothers and sisters. You see, when Jesus endured the cross, he not only endured the physical pain and death, but he also, much worse, endured the bearing of sin for his people. It says in our Bible that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When did he do that? At the cross. Isaiah 53, 6. He bore the sins of many. Isaiah 53, 12. It says in John 1, 29, John the Baptist calls out to Jesus and says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was a sin bearer. And in that way, he was not enduring the cross like the thieves that were beside him. He was in a much worse way. He not only took the pain and the punishment and the physical death, but he also was bearing the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. All of those who would come to him and trust in him as Christ and Savior. Thirdly, he endured the cross, not only through the bearing of sin, not only through the physical death, not only through the bearing of sin, but also thirdly, through abandonment. Abandonment. As we think about and consider the cross work, 
we know that in the midst of this cross action, this event, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Breaking the perfect, wonderful, and beautiful fellowship that he had with God the Father the entire time that he, is, that, that he was on earth, as well as the entire time that he existed before all eternity. He had fellowship with the Father, and he was broken off and abandoned by God when he was on the cross when the sin was laid on him. And then fourthly and finally, which I think is really the point here of the, of the author, he bore the wrath of God. You see, this is, this is unlike anybody else that went to the cross and endured this cross. Jesus not only took the physical pain, he not only bore the sin of those who would trust in him, he not only was abandoned by God in communion with him, but he bore the wrath of God. This by far was probably the worst. The word that we use in our Bibles for this absorbing or taking upon himself, the wrath of God, is the word propitiation. It's only found in four different verses. It's spoken of all over the New Testament, but it's found, this word's found particularly in four different verses. Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, and 1 John 4.10. Propitiation. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was receiving upon his body the unadulterated, pure wrath of God that sin deserved of all of those who would place their faith in Christ. He was receiving it for himself so that we would not have to bear it. He was taking it as the penalty. He was the substitute. He was the Lamb of God who was receiving that wrath and absorbing it for us, for our sake, so that we would not have to. I think this is pretty much the, this how, this is what really this pastor is talking about here when he speaks of the fact here that Jesus endured this cross, that he was absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, in your fight against sin and temptation, look to Jesus. For he's the only one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Endured the cross. Look to Jesus. Next it says here that we're to look to Jesus who not only was the founder and perfecter, look to Jesus who not only endured the cross, but thirdly look to Jesus who despised the shame. Despised the shame. Now I hadn't, I didn't put this in at the beginning, and then and the more I meditated on it, the more I just felt like we needed to hear this. And so, please uh, hear me out. What is shame? Shame is the all too common preaching of your conscience to yourself, which says, You are worthless. You fail again. You can't do it. You are not loved or lovely. Give up and stop trying, for you're not worth it. You will never get it right. This is what shame is. And it would be different if those who are around you, and sometimes even those who are closest to us, speak those kind of words to us. That's one thing. And granted, we take it to heart, don't we? 
But the problem with shame is that it preaches far louder within our souls. We internalize it, and that internal conscience is screaming to us, you are shameful. You are not worthy. You are disappointing. You will never measure up. Brothers and sisters, if you are one of those who deal with shame, my encouragement to you is to look to Jesus for he despised the shame. You see, when he was on the cross, he not only took the penalty of sin, but he despised the shame according to our text. You see, this cross was a cursed thing. He hung there shameful, naked, and despised by men. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. He took the curse in his shame. Isaiah 53, which we've already read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. See, when Christ went to the cross, he wasn't just kind of generally, uh, kind of overarching way, kind of saving the world in an umbrella way. He was reaching, reaching into the very depths of your soul and saying, I'm delivering you from the sorrow and the shame that you so constantly are trying to measure up with one another. The shame that you're believing from others. It says he took our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. There was shame in the cross and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. All who, while we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me state this truth another way. Kind of a backdoor kind of way. Maybe this will help. Christ did not die for what people would think about you. That is a false, assumed shame. What people think about you and how they speak to you and the shame you may feel from them, that's a false, assumed shame given to you by Satan himself. Christ died to remove the real shame that existed between a holy God and sinful men. It started when Adam and Eve went and hid in the garden. Why did they hide in the garden? They were ashamed. And what did God do? He made them coverings and said, now you can, now you can come. You can stand in my presence. Brothers and sisters, if you are going to be rid of the shame, the empty, false shame that's in this world, then you must look to Jesus Christ who despised the shame. Who despised the shame. Finally, and very short, I want you to look to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. And as we turn to approaching the table, I want us to consider this. Jesus who is seated at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus' passion or the agony that he went through on the cross was not the end. But instead, this enduring the cross was a necessary path for Jesus to approach the throne of God. He went through this path that was set before him. He endured the cross. Why? So that he can approach the very throne of God. Christ's cross is his and our divine ordained path to exaltation. Let us with great joy then look to Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that we may with endurance 
run this race set before us. So as we approach the table this morning, I realize that we are all in a race, and it is a difficult race. It is not a passive race. It's not a a stroll in the park, a walk on the beach. It is agony. And yet God has called us to it, and he set our course. There's only one way to endure, brothers and sisters. Keep trying to buckle it up and pull on your own boots and try to do it your own way and in your own means and with your own ordained hands and abilities and strengths, and you'll continue to fall. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, with the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, now seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he has called us to be. And by faith we're coming this morning to take this cup and take this bread and to receive it, to eat it as a testimony that we are this morning again, we're going to look to Jesus. We're going to stop trying to do it our own way. We're going to look to Jesus by faith and say, Lord, I want to run this race. I want to do it well. I want to do it with, with energy and exertion. And I know I can only do it when I look to you, when I see the prize that will cause me to do this. It will cause me to endure. So let us pray.